Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt. Now look at my front butt.
I can't ever do a show with him again. And that's how I feel. Well, it's a rubber band thing. When he does stuff, it doesn't make us look bad. It makes him look bad. And then after right. he does a lot of stuff, it makes all of us look it makes me look bad since I am seen as the guiding light and the one who is supposed to deal with problems. Right, because it's your show. You're the producer. And in my um, 20 years of radio, producing radio, um, even at work and school, um, you know, you you have to do what the boss says or you get fired. That's the way it goes. Yeah. And that's that. And now moving on. Well, it seems that uh, Disney reopened the parks this weekend. And it was terrifying from a lot of people that went there. Yeah, the the accounts of some of the people <laughs> wasn't their their Disney experience, you know, the the one they were looking for, like say when they first booked their vacation a year ago. <laughs> well, that one that uh, Chris Levitan of Facebook Movie Madness posted. I think it was him. Yeah. Said this one woman left terrified she didn't even go in because Disney were not managing social distancing guidelines and everybody was packed in was then packed in. <laughs> well, of course it's if anyone has ever ever doubted. I mean, if you've gone to Disneyland once, you know that Disneyland is in it for the profit, for the profit, not for anything else. I, I stopped going to Disneyland a long time ago because I really hated the experience. The first time I went, I was shocked. I was a teenager, and I was shocked by the fact that it wasn't that um, magical experience that I thought. And then the second time I went as a young adult, we went there to an all-night this is Disneyland in California, and and we had a good time because it wasn't um, super crowded, and uh, we got to ride the ride we wanted, and it was it was okay because it was nighttime and cool. And but when I started taking my own sons to Disneyland, uh, and the long lines and uh, the 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 food that cost like. 15 times more than, uh, you know, uh, an ice cream for $15 yeah. when you can get it at the store for $2. That's... We stopped going for to the Dollywood money. when it started being around 60 to 80 bucks a ticket, but they handled their opening this week great. The well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. The rides that will cause you to really be close, close to each other, like uh, the locomotive and all that, are closed. And they made people stand the proper distance to each other. Now that is really good. 
You know, um, I don't see how roller coasters can run because people oh, are screaming. Easy. One car empty, two car, one car full, one car, two car empty, one car full, two car empty, one car full. Okay, but they empty. have to have masks on. The people have to. They're screaming and spitting, <laughs> and the cars well, must in be Japan, paralyzed. They're not allowed to scream during a roller coaster. Oh, but that wouldn't ha- that wouldn't COVID. work in America. Uh, You're definitely not uh, going to go to a big extensive music park. You should be bowing to, you should be bending over backwards to do whatever the heck you can to stay there. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't know. At this point in time, I'm scared to go to work. Why would I want to go to Disneyland? Yeah, and to uh, quote, I are... think this was a Facebook man, too. Uh, there was this one school that did a meeting to discuss wherever they should open up for after the summer. And about 40 to 50 uh, people that went there caught the damn virus. What does that say? What about that guy who uh, went to the uh, to the party? Coronavirus is a oh, those, hoax yeah, there party. Oh, those college kids that went to this coronavirus party with this guy there to see if they caught it as a lark. Right. His last and they word caught before it. he died was, "I made a big mistake." I'm I'm not la- I'm laughing in an ironic state because I'm not laughing that this person um died because another one of my friends today this is what's been happening over the last week one of my friends or one of my family members are starting to lose people in their lives to this damn virus it's starting to happen Back in March, I was afraid of it, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. But now, suddenly, people I know are, their friends and family are dying. My own nephew has it. And so here's the deal. that We didn't listen, and people are dying. Yeah. And so I'm we're sorry to open the show like that, but quarantine shit and two new diuretics a day that makes you pee, folks, just to make <laughs> sure that I stay healthy. And if I have to do that just to stay healthy, then tell me what I'm going to think about you guys who are. I know. I know. I'm so I'm I'm so selfish. I'm so selfish that I can't uh uh think of other people and their they could possibly be harmed by my stupid actions. Yeah. Yeah. Well um, at least you got to see a new good sci fi movie this weekend. 
<laughs> That's right. Because um, well, they're starting to release the movies on 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 demand. Like I was gonna watch. Oh, I forgot what it was last night. But it's twenty bucks, and I had to I have to figure out my expenses here before I start. You know, just jumping into a twenty bucks movie tonight and the next night and the next night. But um, I think that's the way it's going to go. I think that the new releases, maybe in December things will calm down, but I doubt it because the flu is going to start, and I don't know. But $20 is not that bad for a, a household to pay for a brand-new movie. And if you get to keep it, which most of them, if you pay $20, you get to keep it. Yeah, so... I don't. I see this as a positive thing, especially if you have a nice setup. I don't have a nice setup. But my TV's only like um, a 50-inch TV, and yeah. I have a surround sound. It's it's not the best surround sound in the world, but it's it's good enough because I've sat in some pretty crappy movie theaters, <laughs> sticky floors, weird smells, and bad sound systems. And paid that much, right? So come on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in these little VOD movies that are on top, they're better than some of the big ones that came out this year. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that as a joke. They have been. I know. I. I Can you it's imagine true. the one that you seen Friday? How hard you'd have to jump through hoops to see it before this? Oh, it would. That movie would have never hit my theaters. Never. It would have never opened in Fresno. No way. That's um, the audience here. Sixty percent of the audience here would not be interested in it, and eighty percent of it would never. The and. And an extra 20% would never even consider that kind of a movie. So a good 80% would not go see it. And most so wouldn't have the patience to make it from, uh, to the stinger at the end of it, which, from what I heard, turns the whole dang movie around. It does. It's, um, I don't want to give anything away, but the... And I don't mean but, I'm going to tell you anyway, because I'm not. Um, The movie is um, kind of slow-paced. It doesn't give out much information, especially the first 20 minutes. And so instead of wondering, you know, like there's, there's no real tension about what's going on, so instead of wondering, oh, my gosh, what's, what's happening, you're, you're thinking, is this movie going to actually give us some information? But it finally starts picking up the pace, things start working out, and then there's a twist at the end that makes it worth watching. Cool. And that movie is called Archive. And you yeah. can see, I saw it on Amazon Prime. I think I paid $7 for it. 
So it's definitely if you want to, if you're interested, I'm always interested in the AI movies and the uh, robots and things like that. So um, it held my interest, but chaos yeah. is, is good. What I want to see but I haven't seen yet because my nan hasn't been running good is uh, Becky. The one about Kevin James where he plays like in a group of neo-Nazis who take over this house, but what they don't know is that the little girl that is in the house with her uh, stepmom and her dad and her stepbrother, or soon-to-be stepmom, stepdad, and brother, is on the verge of a psychotic breakdown because she's having issues dealing with her... uh, mother's death a year ago and she feel like her dad's getting married too and she's showing extreme violent tendencies and then these guys show up and start hurting the people she loves right i read that i think i watched the the trailer for that yeah she looks scarier than the bad guys in the movie (laughs) Well, I think that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah. Follow that line in the trailer. Becky, I don't want to hurt you, but I want to hurt you. I want to hurt you real bad. Bad, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, wow, I'm not going to watch this one with the lights out. <laughs> and if you have HBO Max, uh, Scoob just hit it for free, but... I've heard not that good things about it. And uh, right. on DC right. this week, uh, Trolls World Tour come out, which I want to see just because it has George Clinton as the king of funk in it. <laughs> I had no idea. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> oh, and guess what the number one movie this weekend was this weekend with uh, $150,000 was what what was it yeah the empire strikes got released for its 40th anniversary this weekend and it was the number one movie this weekend yay empire is such a great movie i love that movie yay for empire yay for yoda and darth vader Yay for Luke in his best role, <laughs> or, or his best movie. Isn't it movie. funny that the drive-in is showing that people want to go out and watch movies? They don't care about the big budgets. They just want to get out there. And they're willing to devour any product they can get their hands on. Right, right. I watched the Netflix new movie. I liked it. It was called The Old Guard with uh, oh, uh, Charlie Theron. Yeah, yeah. How is that for great. a for uh, action franchise? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great setup. I really liked it. In fact, this is how you know, how I know I liked it. I woke up. Um, this morning I started um, drinking my coffee, thinking about things, and bam, the storyline hit me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that part was good. Oh, yeah, that's a good mystery. Oh, yeah, that is something to look forward to. 
I liked it. I liked it a lot. <laughs> and it's Holy number one. It's the number one movie. Uh, yeah, well, you know, hopefully she's going to do another um, Furiosa. Uh, man, that would be great. Uh, no, they're doing it. Uh, Miller, Frank Miller is doing it as a Furiosa prequel. They're going to show everything oh. up the Fury Road with uh, Tom Hardy as Max telling the story. Interesting. So they're going to have to recast not... it with a younger her. No, that's not good. She needs. She's at the edge of. She's at her at her height right now. Her peak. She needs to do another Furiosa. Yeah, but they're but, but he's going with a prequel. I understand. I understand. Don't you forget the sign I... that's always up there? In Frank Miller, we trust. <laughs> Well, you know, he's never let me down, ever. I love every Mad Max movie. I love them all. This is the so. guy that gave us the Warrior Woman. Uh, <laughs> and the Road Warrior. Yes, the Road Warrior. Yes. And Anti-Entity. <laughs> Thunderdome. Um, sometimes I feel like we're headed straight for Thunderdome. Don't you? Oh. This virus and everything. <laughs> well, we need someone as strong as anti-entity to hold us right now. We don't have it. Yes, we do. We need her badly. Badly. Because without a good leader, I don't care what country you're in, without a good leader... Your country is just screwed. As America has found out the hard way. Yeah. And now to get on to our main subject. What was it about the Gutenberg press that the rich and elite hated, hated when it came out? Probably the fact that the the um, the lower class people were finally going to get to read. Right. Before the Gutenberg Press come out, the Bible itself was an elite thing. You could only the biggest and richest churches could have one. If you get some books pre Gutenberg Press, you will see that they were all hand scribed. They had Painted pictures in them, and painted. Which they is very cool. Valuable commodity. As a matter of fact, when Gutenberg started, when the Gutenberg Bible came out, the church was calling it blasphemous that a common man could read the words of God the same as the church. Boy, us commoners, what what do we think we are? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. So mass market reading materials have always been a fray, a fear. 
since the start, they were used to spread propaganda. Oh, yeah. And they were used to do reading and all that. Well, heck, a woman was not allowed to study from books. <laughs> yeah, back then, if that. you were a man and you let a woman study from your books and they found out, your book collection would be confiscated. Right. Women who were learned, learned, they they were taught by teachers with the spoken word, but some were, it was hidden. Some did read, some were taught. And that's throughout history, throughout the world. In different places, in different areas, women were either held back or secretly taught. Yeah. But... How can, once the press starts, how can you really keep that under control? How do you really stop people, everyone, from learning how to read and reading? You can't. You can't. Because once you get that hunger in you to learn, everything. Right. Right. The... Well, up until the smartphone happened. So, you know, being a teacher, yeah, they got the smartphone has, now. Yeah, the smartphone has really destroyed the curiosity factor in so many people. And I'm not just talking about teenagers. You know, teenagers with smartphones, that's a a terrible thing in in just that sentence. But um grown-up people stopped reading. Grown-up people with their smartphones are constantly skipping from one thing to another, which after a while hurts your attention span so much that you can't even read an entire article in a, in a magazine, let alone sit down and read a book. Yeah, ADD talking or ADD writing, as they call it. Yep, yeah. It's very prevalent these days, and I'm not equipped to deal with a human being like that. No. And don't forget, slaves, if they found out that a slave, be it black or be it white, knew how to read, even the Bible, they would be killed. Right. You know, purposely keeping slaves ignorant has been, you know, a thing throughout history. Throughout history, you can find it anywhere in in ancient civilizations. How to um, oppress is to not is to not educate those who are your servants. Who was it that said the most dangerous thing to uh, society is an educated masses? I do like not that. remember. But it's said the most dangerous thing ever is an educated society. And I believe they do work on that. They love people that will just expect 
expound on their ideas and not right. really well, do their research. I'm going to find that because it's just very true. Um, how can I say this? I see at school the kids who actually don't want to learn, and then somehow I get them to learn by having them read something and then encouraging them to think about what they read. Those kids, when the light bulb goes on, it's incredible. They become curious. They read more. They want to do more. They want hands-on things to, to build. They want to do what human beings have done since the dawn of time, right? Yes, it's just incredible to watch it happen. But then there's a larger segment than ever before, those who refuse. I don't want to learn, I don't like learning, and I'm not going to. And then as you watch them go from from the early grades to the older grades to graduation, and watch them, now that I've been doing this for almost 20 years, watch them in their lives and see what happens to the somewhat uneducated compared to the educated, it's, it's really sad. There's a whole separation. And so education, all those things, all those um, cliches about education are just true. Yeah, and that's why they wanted to suppress um, the lower classes or the lower people, the common man from reading and women and play. I mean, we all know that, I guess. Yeah, and just think about back in the day, and where they had chapter books, where they would leave books. In segments, not all at once, and you would have to wait months at a time for the next part of the book right. to come out. The serials. Yeah. That was one of the best reading experiences I ever had when Stephen King uh, did that with The Green Mile, released it like... One twenty-five page book a month for maybe six to seven months. Wow, I didn't. I must have. What year was that? Do you know? Uh, I forget what year it came out. It was in the nineties, but just. It was an amazing experience. He released it like that. It was like chapter one, all that. You didn't know where the story was going. Yeah, well, that's um, like, I'll just use one of my favorite examples, and that's uh, uh, my favorite series. Roger uh, Zelazny wrote The Chronicles of Amber. And at the end of every book was a cliffhanger to what was going to happen to um, 
the the one true city, Amber, and all its princes and princesses, and what was going to happen to reality itself. And so everything was left as a cliffhanger, and you had to wait until the next book. And usually back then in the 70s and the, the 60s and the 50s, back then a book was published, um, except for the first book, maybe a Maybe it happened with the first book, but a book was published, and the second book, if it was a series that, and it ended on a cliffhanger, the book was published um, halfway through the writing of the second one so that the, the uh, audience to that book had to wait, but they didn't have to wait too long because if you let a group of people wait too long, they lose the interest in it. So the book had to, the second book in a series would always have to be published around the six month time. We don't well, adhere remember, to any of that anymore. Uh, uh, Ian Fleming did that with uh, the books to, with From Russia with Love. Right, right. In the end of the second book, Rosa Klebb kicks James Bond and he dies of poisoning. And Thunderball, or is it, I forget, it's, no, it's You Only Live Twice. No, Thunderball opens up with James Bond's funeral. And then a couple chapters in, they learn that it, his death was fake. Right, well, those are the things that um, that really had the presses moving up until, I don't know, what? The smartphone, I guess. Even when people supposedly were not reading as much in the, the end of the 90s, the beginning of the 21st century, there were still people reading like uh, Harry Potter, even though Harry Potter was um, all, a Harry Potter book was all self-contained. The thing is, is that once you get a good story going, people don't ever want that story to end. Yeah, that's why I never had a problem with The Hunger Games, uh, Twilight, uh, Harry Potter, uh, yep. The Maze Runner and all that because they got kids to read. Exactly. My kids, um, when I first started at my high school that I'm at now, um, Twilight, it wasn't Twilight, it was The Hunger Games, I guess, was first. And the kids, all of a sudden, instead of asking them to read, they would come into my classroom <laughs> and sit down and at lunchtime and eat their lunch and read their books. Now, they weren't the books that... Um, that we were reading in class, but they were more um, willing to read the books in class when they were reading those books on their own because the enjoyment of reading is is so much more grand than watching any film. Yeah, and if you remember in the book, one of the neater things in it that they didn't keep in the movies, and I don't know why because it was one of the best elements of the books, I've read the first one, is the passing of recipes and stuff. 
Huh, really? Yeah. They were so deprived of food that reading about recipes and cookbooks and things like that, you know. Huh. Well, that that makes sense. That makes total sense. But, yeah, back in the 20s where we are now, it's like they had the Penny Dreadfuls, the Police Gazette, and things like that where they would report on the crimes or whatever dreadful things. The Penny Dreadfuls were a spinoff of the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris where they would put on ghoulish plays. The Penny Dreadfuls, you would get stuff like uh, Terror in the Red Barn, uh... Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. <laughs> and things like that. Right. People loved them, too. And, you know, what? okay, they were... Uh, um, Ray Bradbury was a uh, a big fan of those types of publications he grew up on those and when he was very very young like 10 years old he started writing stories and he wanted to be published in those types of um, serial magazines or um, the pulp magazines. and in fact that's what he did I think he was like 15 and wrote his yeah. first story and he also um, uh, worked for a company and sold them on the street, and um, these types of um, of publications were were cheap enough so that everyone could find a few pennies and buy them, and that's how it all took off. Yeah, why do you think they called them penny dreadfuls? They were dreadful subjects and they only cost a penny yeah and that's the way Charles Dickens yes the same Charles Dickens who's taught in literature classes today most of his books were little serialized chapter books which were sent out chapter to chapter as he wrote them Right. Oh, so many people, so many writers in the last century that we grew up on grew up on those little serial magazines, the the dime novels. And from that, their imaginations took off, and we grew up on their science fiction and horror and ideas in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and created what we have now. Yeah. And don't forget, who was the first ones writing uh, horror movie, horror novels? Was it men? <laughs> no. Well, women is... <laughs> Camilla women... was written by a woman. Right, right. I I was, um, when I was in college at um, UCSC, I took this class called um, The Great Adulteresses. 
And, I, oh, man, my professor was the hardest, hardest professor I ever had. Oh, my. But she taught this class to teach us what the authors thought of women and then what, how women retaliated. And it's so funny. The men, way back when the novel was first invented, men were writing um, romance um, novels, romance stories. This is um, um, back in the 1800s when, when um, uh, novels were first really, really coming together as yeah. a genre thing. And so the men were writing, the writers were writing these stories, and most of the stories were about women who were, looked like good mothers and good wives who were um, cheating on their husbands. All kinds of stories like this. You can research it. And, uh, and then 20, 30, 40 years later, it's the women who turned that around and started writing horror stories. Horror stories because they're not going to retaliate by saying, oh, no, women don't cheat. No, no, women, men are, 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 are taking our reputations and ruining them. Oh, no. They just took the horror of what they had to live through and put it into this new genre. <laughs> yeah. And so it was Who's a great the class. Who was person to write a science fiction horror book? Well, I think Mary Shelley. Yeah, Mary I'm Shelley not, with Frankenstein yeah. or the or the modern Prometheus. Yes, and she did it on a dare. Because yeah. Lord Byron, the um, egocentrist that he was, and um, Percy was pretty egocentric too. Um, Lord Byron, they were they were stuck in a in a chateau. Oh, gee, wouldn't it be terrible being stuck in a chateau uh, during this this terrible weather happening? And so. Lord Byron says, okay, you know, I'm going to write this. And, you know, I'm going to, at first it was like a poetry type um, mm-hmm. challenge. And then it just turned into who can write the best scary story. And the rest is just history. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Percy and Byron liked. Shelley's short story so much they encouraged her to expand it. Right. Right. And she did. I mean, I, dang it, I'm my my schooling is failing my brain right now. But the the letters, it's a certain type of um, of novel writing. The letters, and I can't think of what it's called oh, yeah, right the, now. Uh, the Third, third, per, yeah, third, third person per, yeah, narrative. Right, but if they also have, there's another phrase they use for it, where the whole story is told through letters, and I can't remember because one of my favorite Russian um, novels is actually a trilogy, and it also, is it Russian? might be German. But anyway, it, oh, it's German. Um is written that way through letters, and I can't remember what that 
called officially in literature. Sorry, Boy, it's been a long time. Read Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's told through letters and journals. Yes, exactly. And so these are so, and these are interesting because it gives an insight into the personality of the letter writer as well as the story that's happening. So it's, it, there's yeah. many different points of view, which keeps an audience just wanting more. And the, and the first two really serious, hardcore science fiction writers, as we would call it, are Adelius Huxley and H.G. Wells. Right. Brave New you World. Have... Oh. Wow. Well, you have to remember Jules Verne, too. You really yeah. do. Because he was, like, the first one to, you know, postulate the the underwater ship thing called the submarine. Yeah, the Nautilus. Right. And uh, um, so that was very science fiction-y, even though the term science fiction hadn't started yet. But, yeah, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, Shape the Things That Come, War of the Worlds, uh which is truly science fiction, man. I mean, scary. Yeah. Same with Brave New World. Scary. And um, uh, another one. Um, oh, God. Why is my brain failing me? Um, another one that H.G. Wells wrote, I'm going to find the, the name of it because I can't, my brain is Who just... Not? Okay, The Time Machine, The War of the World, The Invisible Man. Yes, The Food of the Gods. Thank you. When I read that, it just, it completely freaked me into a, a, a different type of thinking. H.G. Wells' brain was so fantastic. I wish he was still alive. I wish I could have just talked to him once, just for a whole day. And as much as I love the George Powell version, no movie has ever dared tried to do the alien machines that H.G. Wells described in his book. Right. Well, the closest I've seen are the Chicken Walkers and the Empire Strikes Back. There's this um, found footage thing put together called War of the Worlds. I I can't give you any information on it. I I watched it on on Amazon Prime maybe about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And they had um, the three spindly legs, and um, I thought those were pretty scary looking. 
as a grown-up. Those um, those spaceships that come out of that that false meteorite in War of the Worlds in the 1950s film. When I was a kid, that scared me to death. <laughs> and World but, of Worlds ain't pertinent today, is it? No. Well, not Martian. A gigantic, technologically advanced race that comes in and any of our freaking guns, weapons, could not even touch them or scratch them? (laughs) But a virus, a simple virus that they had not had been introduced to their bodies before, killed and dead. That is probably the scariest thing ever. And how he twisted it like that. That's a twist ending. That's one of the greatest twist endings ever. It's one of those beautiful speeches, too. The smallest creature that God created is the one thing that they did not account for. Well, I guess on that Mars, they had no viruses. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know that they had to, like, uh, find a vaccination. <laughs> they had to well, that's create a vaccination. Well, we, we just barrel in head first without thinking of things like that. Right. That's probably what we'll do, probably. But still, these things, these early novels, are what fed the the dime store novels and the penny dreadfuls and the the serial booklets that everyone could read that everyone had five cents to read or you kept your you you kept your five five cents and waited for the next one to come out you hid it in a special spot. Yeah, I mean, they did. Hardback books were still an expensive luxury back then. Well, you know, the truth be told, they're still an expensive luxury. They've always been an expensive luxury. What I did on my Facebook today, I took all the novels that my old my old paperback novels and I, I took pictures of them and I put them on my Facebook because when I was extremely poor, I would always go to the bookstore instead of the library. I use the library a lot, but I always wanted to keep my books. So I would save my money and I would um, go to the bookstore and I would buy myself a paperback. I would look or hunt, or maybe I already knew something was coming out, or I had been turned on to something that I wanted. That's how I built my paperback library. That's how I still have these certain books that I have. Because the paperback has always been there for us, us poor people, us common people, us people that do all the work. 
and get none of the glory. The paperback has been there for us. I mean, come on, up until recently with these damn smartphones, and I don't really use my Kindle very much. Kindles is really yeah. what. Yeah, my mom uses um, her the other one, the other one. Um, until then, everyone carried a paperback with them. Whether you were going to wait in line somewhere, or you were going to the doctor and having to wait two million years to get in for a fifteen-minute consultation. You Going always had beach, a paperback. Just yourself. Everywhere. If you were going on summer vacation, everyone would ask you, what paperback are you taking? Yeah. I read all Peter Benchley's um, novels during the summer in paperback on the beach. And don't forget the biggest, well, mag, and we had the magazines that start pop up too, like, uh, well, we already had the Penny Raffles, but Weird Tales when it came out. Yes, yes. Jesus. What did we get out of Weird Tales? We got Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Ray Bradbury. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah, Edgar Rice Burroughs. And what's funny is Edgar Rice Burroughs were called boys' books. Or Men Bone Adventures. Right. From way back, from back then. It's because it's still that snobbery about women can't read, women can't learn, women are just stupid, they have babies and could cook food, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's why the stories were centered around men most of the time, and uh, women always screamed and all that kind of stuff. It didn't just happen in the movies. Women screamed a lot in, in those novels and those short stories. But everything, women were left out of that until until the genre started really becoming solid. And then women started writing them under men's names. Well, yeah, that's what happened with the first uh, volume edition of uh, Frankenstein. It was written under... It was issued under her husband's name. Right. Well, it had to be, or else it would never be published, right? Right. She she couldn't have written that. Blasphemy. Yeah. And so don't you also think that through the Penny Dreadfuls and all the different serial magazines, that's how comics also got their start? Yeah, of course. The first comics were collecting comics from the newspapers. And they call they were called the first comic book was called Sunday Funnies and it was just a recollection of 
uh, comic strips from the comic, from the newspaper, that they collected in there. Right. And then they started doing um, the men's only format, and you got stuff like uh, uh, Captain America and things like that, you know, World War II. Right, but I think that they really... I think it was before... World War Two, that they really started um, the the distribution. The audience grew, and the distribution was more. I think yeah. it was like the like a hundred years ago, like the 1920s, when yeah. the, the publication companies picked up on the fact that these things were. Um, were of interest to a lot of people, so they would they started um, turning them out. And then yeah, the superheroes. They, they really caught fire. Same with the, the pulp paperbacks. And pulp fiction right. does not come from the thing. It came from the cheap kind of paper. Right. Oh, I was going to uh, mention that. Yeah. Right, your books, your your books that nobody could afford, and this is the way up until. No, I don't think it's ever stopped. Okay, just think about it. Go to go to a a bookstore if you still have one in your town, and you can see this. It's still that way. The expensive books, I love the expensive paper, and the expensive um, hardcovers, and and the photo paper for the pictures and everything. But even the paperbacks, recycled paper. It's always I been... love when you go into a used bookstore and you have that smell of the old paperbacks just <sighs> go up I your know. Nose. It just hits you. It's a wall of this wonderful smell. Yeah. That is that that right there. The old books made on the supposedly cheap paper. That those still hold up. I still have books like that. Yeah. And it was Do you remember cheaper that because one scene it, from the Ninth Gate where uh, Johnny Depp was looking for a book. It's looking through a book. And it's like at the first of it, and then he just takes a great big smell of it, and they're like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, you can you can forge paper, make it look old, but you can't can't make that smell." Right, right, right. We do it all the time. Uh, I have this one. Um, well, I used to have this one uh, lesson that I would have the kids write or make a will like if they were in the Roman days because in the Shakespearean play, Julius Caesar, it's Julius Caesar's will that changes everything in the play. You know, um, one-third of the way into or halfway through the play, 
Caesar's will is read and then everything changes. So I have them make a will. And they're like, well, how do we make it look old? And there's all kinds of different ways. Coffee grounds is a really good way of doing it. Yeah. But you can't get that old. I still have some of those on my wall that I'm going to have to rip apart in the next week. Um, um, I have those on my wall at, in my classroom. And mm. no matter how old they get, they don't have that old smell to them. They just don't. No, because the technique of making paper is different nowadays. They make it from some kind of fi- wood fibers, not wood pulp. Right, right, right. And they would always so have these ha- lurid covers, too, like uh, the reissues of War <laughs> of the Wards that shows a woman with a torn shirt and a man... <laughs> running away, and it shows like the walkers shooting lasers into the rubble. Right, right. Well, you always had to have that woman who was flailed backwards with her arms, you know, and like she's yeah. screaming or fainting. And, and her, her blouse they can get away with, wink, wink, wink. Right. The, the, the blouse has to be ripped. But it makes for a good um, comic book cover. <laughs> if well, you want to sell a lot. Well, novel cover, just as they call yeah, it, you know. Just any of them. Right. Any of them. Yeah. Right. It just, that used to, you know. They call them dime store a, novels, too. Why? Because that's where you would find them, dime store novels. You know, you go into your five and ten store. Right. That's our dollar stores. We used to have the five and dime stores. Yeah, nickel and dime, five or ten. And you go yeah, in there and there's a bunch of cheap paperbacks, and there'll be a dime store novel. Right. Right. God. I, being so nostalgic, I have so many good memories of doing things like that. Picking up great comic books, picking up great novels, fun novels. I, you know, the word great, when you put it next to a novel, then then people assume that it's some kind of great work of literature and it's going to be made into some kind of Oscar-winning movie. But when I say great novels, I'm talking about something that was adventurous, usually science fiction, but it could be fantasy. I love fantasy. And uh, um, just takes you away. It's a hot summer day in Phoenix, Arizona, when you can barely breathe because it's so damn hot, and all you have is a, a, a swamp cooler that blows out hot air. Um, <laughs> if you don't have something that can take your mind off of the sweltering heat, then you're really in desperate trouble. And so those those stories, those magazines, those those cheap novels, how enriching of a life they were to me. And look at Edgar Rice Burroughs, especially the John Carter series. They had strong women in that. Heck, oh, the yeah. first book was called The Princess of Mars. Right, um... 
Edgar Rice Burroughs had Tarzan. Jane was not yeah. a, uh, Jane. a yeah. Jane's not a, a, a you know a wallflower. No. And so, and Ray Bradbury loved Edgar Rice Burroughs. Ray yeah. Bradbury read tons of Edgar Rice Burroughs to become who we all know as Ray Bradbury and all his greats. I mean, you know, the illustrated man is like a serial novel. And it's like a, it's like a serial. It, could, it actually is like going back to Pulp Fiction and to the Dime Store novels because yeah. every every chapter in Illustrated Man is a new story. And some of the stories are connected and some of them are not, but the overall theme is there. Illustrated Man is one of the, the best reads I've ever had. And what did you girls have? Nancy Drew. Who I ain't gonna complain I, about Nancy Drew. She was tough. She was. She would get out I there and do her thing. Devoured those. And you know, here's another thing. My mom didn't mind buying me Nancy Drew books because they weren't expensive. They they were um, most most of my Nancy Drew books were hardcover, but they weren't expensive because they weren't made from the expensive uh, pulp material. They were yeah. made with wood and paper and all of that, but it it was a little bit different. So I could have a new Nancy Drew book every time one came out. Yeah, they were made for the masses of the Laura Ingle Wilder's books. You know, Little House on the Prairie and things like that. Right. Right. I was just looking at this, um, the years of Edgar Riceboro, um, 1912, 1913, Tarzan of the Apes, 1912. That was over 100 years ago. Yeah. And those those stories are still, we still love those stories. Well, Conan is That's from a, 1920, and we right. still love him to death. Right, right, right. Oh, okay, how about um, when you say Conan, how about Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle, who wrote all the... Um, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, which was another brand-new genre, the detective. That was a brand new genre too, science fiction, the detective. You know who wrote the first horror. detective story? As we know it, the first modern detective story? Who? Edgar Allan Poe with Murders in the Rue Norga. Oh, Bibbins. right, of course. Of course. Of what am I thinking? Yes, of course. Of course. Edgar Allan Poe is one of those that when he was taught literature, that was probably your easiest slam dunk. You could get anyone into those tales. Well, that's because he's such a genius. 
yeah, he's kind of like Shakespeare because Edgar Allan Poe, when he wrote stories, he used the language in such a literate way, a way in which anybody, anybody who can read and is, you know, if you can read and understand what you're reading, even though his, his, he was a grammarian who just, he was, punctuation, sentence structure was really important to Edgar Allan Poe, but he did it so well that it didn't matter what your education was, if you could read, you could enjoy Edgar Allan Poe. And that's what made Edgar Allan Poe the, the man of the people. Yeah, Mask of the Red Death, uh, Pit in the Pendulum, so many. So many. I always do an Edgar Allan Poe at um, Halloween, always. Hopefully I can do that yeah. this year, this school year coming up. Oh, yeah, that's but, yeah, one the almost, kids love it. Yeah, huh? well, that's one of the most favorite episodes to do, and one of the most loved is the reading episode we do every Halloween with the Four or five different short stories. Right, right. Because it's, I don't know, it's just the best. I've had, um, I've used different readers. I've used um, literary readers. I've used celebrity readers. I've um, used myself all through the years of teaching Edgar Allan Poe. And the kids love it. They eat it up. They always want more. I never have time for more, but they always want more. That tells you something about all these writers way back 100 years ago that got all these genres that we, you know, we co-op these. You know, you're a horror, I'm a science fiction, and we co-op these genres, but these people created them. Yeah, and... uh... Poe painted pictures with his words. It was upon a not, it was upon a not, a dark night dreary. I was feeling sad and weary when upon my chamber door came rapping, rapping forevermore. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well. I mean, you already have a picture in your head from those words. Or H.P. Lovecraft. As I were walking through the house, I heard a scratching, scratching, scratching on the wall. I did not know what it was, but the scratching was always there. <laughs> yeah, these um, that one is basically a first-person description of what's going on, and it's intense. The first year that I was at my high school, my principal came in to uh, observe me on Halloween, and we were doing the pit and the pendulum. And he had the greatest time. He told me, he's like, this is... The, the most scary story and 
but kids are loving it. You're doing it. Um, you're loving it. It's yeah, the pit and the pendulum. One of the very best scary stories. But yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle was loved in the Strand magazine. Well, we have to thank them for, I don't know, following their dreams. You know, because without them following their dreams, um, we wouldn't have today what we have. Because there's, Charles Dickens, you mentioned him earlier, and, you know, Charles Dickens was prolific. He wrote a lot. But his stuff is literature. He was afraid of being broke. Yes. Well, and you can read that in every page of his book. Don't ever read Bleak House. If you've never read Charles Dickens and you want to read, read uh, the, the Christmas Carol. But don't read Bleak House. It will make you want to commit suicide. And the Christmas and so, Carol was written because he just threw it out. He's like, oh, God, right. I won't have no money for Christmas or anything this year. So he just threw out this little 12-page <laughs> story about Scrooge. Right. And... Good Lord, how many times has that been done as cartoons, movies, plays, comic books, blah, blah, blah. One man shows. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Stewart did it as a one man stage show. And, uh, and he did it for a movie yeah. on TNT, too, which, is pretty damn, which was pretty damn good. Right. I have it on DVD. I like it. I like it a lot. Um you know, I have like there's many of the different Scrooge films that I really like, and uh, 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 oh, I lost my train because it's about I'm Charles an Dickens Sims guy. A what? Alistair, the Alistair Sim version oh. of Scrooge. Oh, yes, probably my favorite one too. Yeah, I mean, we had the detective films. And then Agatha Christie come upon the scene. She was the first female mega, mega author. Yep, she was. In fact, I bought um, two of her short stories to read just not too long ago. A collection of two of her early stories. Yeah, look at... This is how good she is. They, I just watched, oh, Stephen, I just watched the ABC Murders um, a couple of days ago with um, oh, Tony it Or uh, a later adaption. The, the one with Malkovich um, um, in it. Oh, wait. The one yeah, you yeah, really yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, I watched that on Amazon you, Prime. That's a good one. Right. Right, the one on Amazon Prime, the one that you've been telling me, watch it, watch it, watch it. And so I watched it. It was great. In fact, I couldn't stop watching it. I binged the whole thing. I think I went to bed that night at around 2 in the morning. (laughs) Malkovich made a great parole. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Well, I did love the Murder in Orient Express, and I was looking forward this year, but it's been delayed of... uh... The Kenneth Branagh murder, 
let's see, Death on the Nile adaption. Oh, I didn't even know that that was happening. Well, everything's yeah. been delayed. It's everything's the been delayed. One. They need he need to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, he's doing a version of that. You know, the second Poirot book. But I love well, Murder on the Orient Express because it shows Poirot is not exactly, you know, a high moral character. <laughs> right. You know, he's human. It's like, well, this guy killed a little girl and it affected all your lives. So as far as I'm concerned, you didn't do it. <laughs> But and don't that forget Miss Marple. You, right. The way that these stories, if they're serials, how they just capture your imagination and you just want more and more of them. Yeah. It's like a short so, home. There's been over like 300 movies and TV shows and everything. And one of my favorites came out the last three or four years, and that's uh, Mr. Holmes with uh, uh, the guy who plays Magneto, Ian McKellen. Oh, oh. Have you heard of it? No, uh uh-uh. What it is, it's uh, Sherlock Holmes in his later years, and he's suffering from dementia. And uh, him and uh, uh, Holmes and... uh, It's set after Holmes and... uh, Watson? uh, Watson has separated, and he's being taken care of by this woman and son, and he's trying to figure out... What was it about his last case that called him retire while his memory is slowly fading away? <sighs> wow. That's kind of sad. Yeah, but it's good. One of the best parts shows Sherlock Holmes going to see uh, a Basil Rathbone movie adaption of <laughs> one of his stories about him. <laughs> Oh, man, that's really cool. Yeah, it's a great, great movie. These things come from these great novels. Great. I use that word again. I apologize. I shouldn't use for the most imaginative. They're so great doesn't give them justice. Great means great literature or something. They're imaginative, creative, adventurous. They engage the reader so deeply. You know, I always wondered why detective novels were always shoved aside when they were the most engaging stories. Oh, I have to sit here and read this great piece of literature from, I don't know, 1785, you know. Here I am in literature class reading some hefty novel written by some really important writer, but those detective novels, man, are they engaging. They really get your mind going. How come they're not great literature? Oh, they are. Mickey Spillane, Dashiell Hammett, 
eight James Kane. They still have that Pulp Fiction title to them, that label. Yeah, and I just think it's wrong. He liked the fact that he was the working class. He was a right a working class guy. That's true. That's who he wrote his book for. Exactly. Mike Hammer was a working class uh, private detective. Yes, he was. Is everyone in a novel is still living? Yes. So, yeah. Yes. But before that, you would have them like high class, like uh, Tommy and Tuppets from the Thin Man series. Uh, What's his name for Murder My Sweet? They all worked for rich and were upper class, you know. Right. Mike Hammer was the first, well,. Maybe the guy from the Maltese Falcon was a working-class guy. Well, I think about um, the Brontes, Charlotte and Emily. Yeah. And how prolific they were at writing. And they, they did not write the femme fatale type um, story they did write about what they knew. They looked at the countryside, they looked where they lived, and they saw these women fawning over men, doing whatever they could to marry well. And so they they wrote about that. And even though they're not serial writing and they're not um, pulp fiction, they are not as well read as, Others, because they are women, and their stories are about women. And Who wrote Pride so, and Prejudice? Um, Jane Austen. Yeah, there's Jane Austen. Right, but Jane Austen, she wrote in a comedic way. Yeah. And so she's much more, um, she's easier to read, and she's... Um, much more what familiar, likable. Yeah. And but what's because funny about her is serious. the girls that worshipped ideals and Pride and Prejudice and things like that. Like, oh, I want to be just like her. Do not right. realize that Jane Austen was making fun of them. Right. Exactly. Right. It was that levity that the one thing I love about Jane Austen is that there's always two levels. That when, when I'm watching a film, reading a book, short story, whatever, if there are the two levels, um, it means this, but there's also a deeper level. So there's the irony and the metaphors and all of that kicking in. That, that's the way Jane Austen always, her writing more her you know what's sad? I've her, seen a million really. adaptions of Little Women. Yeah. But all the other books that are in the same series as Little Women, they haven't adapted. Right. Yeah, everyone does a... Um, there's the original Little Women and there's films of that era. And then there are movie makers who take Little Women and adapt them for um, more modern times. And it's the characters are adaptable. 
that's another great thing about um, good writing. Is your character adaptable? Can you take your your character and stick them into another era and still make yeah. them recognizable? Yeah, last year's version was too feminist. Yeah, I didn't like it too much. I I'm not I against know. feminism, but anytime you take any message and try to force it in, it's not going to work. Yeah, this whole message society that we got going on right now. You didn't hear my message loud and I didn't say I didn't shout it loud enough so I'm going to just throw it in your face. I'm I'm really getting sick of it. Yeah. Because it doesn't change people's minds, it just makes people more resolute to stay in their their ignorant ways. And so I really, I'm so happy for a hundred years ago, all the serial, um, the pulp fictions, all of them, all the different genres, because as, as a group, instead of melting together and becoming one thing, they all found their own particular audiences and made their own pathways, all of them, yeah. from the science fiction and the horror and the detective novels, all of them, sure, we have that all mixed together in in stories, but we also have them all their own little categories. And that couldn't and have happened forget. unless they're... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, Sorry. well, all I was going to say, they couldn't happen unless back then people were eating up all those um, dime novels. Yeah, and don't forget the authors that are so powerful that we have terms for people that write like them, like uh, Dickinson. Right. Is Charles Dickinson. Bronte-esque. Orwellian. Right. Right. Oscar-esque. Right. Yes. Someone who never got the attention he deserved. Who? Kafka. That's because he was too smart for the room. Right, right. Absolutely. People hated him for that. And none and so of his best stories are comfortable to read. Well, No. Because he was calling out the atrocities that he was living through. Yeah. The human atrocities that that were happening. You know, the advent of the industrial age brought so much human misery. It's just our our technology has this deep capacity to bring misery to animals and humans and the earth. It's uh, it's a wonder we're not dead yet. Yeah. But that's what and he you know why he included himself in most of his books. I think that was the brilliant part of it. The characters are either I, Joseph or K or Joseph K. Right. And but I think that was the brilliant point 
um, to what he did. Not everyone could do that and get away with it. And he barely got away with it. And what's sad is Orwell's Animal Farm, every time I've seen it adapted, they've tried to adapt it as a kid's novel for kids. No. I know. No. No. (laughs) I know. It's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous, and you can't adapt it. You can do it with humans. (laughs) You can adapt (laughs) it straight, but you can't market yourself to kids. Or else you'll get no. another watership down, which is another great novel. Great novel. What do you think of how we've gotten to the part where we're scared of books? We have a list of books that can't be taught in school because their ideas are too dangerous or too scary. I know. I've been, I've fought my entire career as a teacher to read Ray Bradbury's books. I don't know why I uh, I don't know why I'm not allowed to. And I don't agree with um, the philosophies or the politics of Anne Rand, but the one novel, that very first one she wrote when she was a teenager, Anthem. Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, forget Atlas Shrugged. Forget um, Foundation, um, whatever it's called. I thought um, that was her first book is why I bought it up. <laughs> oh, no, her first book's called Anthem, and she wrote it when she was a teenager when her father took her away from Russia. When they moved from yeah. Russia to America, she wrote this novel. and Well, it's a, a novella because it's very short, but it's really good as a way to get teenagers to say, hey, let's read this book, figure out what's going on, and it was written by a teenager. But I can't use that either. Why? What is so scary about it? I'm not going to preach her her philosophy because I don't believe in it for one thing, and for another thing, I'm not supposed to preach anybody's philosophy. Oh, but I live in a culture I... where Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are banned because they have negative social, negative racial stereotypes. Well, then how are we ever supposed to know where where we're supposed to grow from? If we don't ever if we don't ever mention it again, maybe it'll go away. Yeah, that'll guarantee you that it will stay forever. Read 1984. That's you know people with. Those types of attitudes need to read 1984. Yeah, it's it's just a uh, joke nowadays because people usually get a joke. In the book, there's no word for bad. There's only good, very good, very good plus, very good, good plus. (laughs) You know. And that just reminds me of everything that happens on Facebook. You know, you got to have a smiley face, a smiley face. You better say it in the right way. Don't use that kind of language. (laughs) Yeah. What's your tone, buddy? 
Yes, how many of our friends go to Facebook jail because they say the wrong word? They use the wrong word. But, yeah, I mean, and and don't forget, Harry Potter is banned from schools. Why? (sighs) You know, I wrote a, a, a short story about a wizard and his apprentice, one of my very first stories I ever wrote, and it got published. Um, But we all had to share our writing in class. And this uh, story was just about, there was a pentagram on the floor of the wizard's dungeon, and the apprentice was not supposed to even step in it and try anything unless the wizard's there. Well, he He did it, he tried it, he got himself in trouble. Kind of like that Fantasia thing where Mickey Mouse does the... So anyway, there was um, a person in my class who got got my... We all had to share our... What we had to do was make six copies of our our story, and then the teacher was going to hand... So we didn't know who got our story... So we each got six copies of a story, and we read it, and then we uh, critiqued it. And so this one person, who turned out to be a female, she uh, critiqued my story from her point of view, which was she was a Christian. And for me to write a story about a a story with a, a pentagram in it, was I must be a Satanist. And she wrote this all on my paper. And so it doesn't surprise me that Harry Potter is banned for using magic and that kind of thing when when back 100 years ago when I wrote a short story, some woman went crazy over a pentagram on the floor. It encourages witchcraft and satanism. Oh, my God. (laughs) I remember when I was a teenager, you made it to high school. You got to read with the big kids. Yep. It was kind of a badge, right? There were Stephen King books. There were Clive Barker books. There was a Clockwork (laughs) Orange. There were George Orwell's books. Oh, easily accessible. Oh, wait, what about Stranger in a Strange Land? Yeah, there were those yeah. books. There, there were books with sex in it. <laughs> yeah. Stranger in a Strange Land changed the game. That was a game-changing sci-fi novel. Yes, and those were in the, the big kids' book area in the library. Yeah. And what's funny is is that some people would poo-poo it because of another author, but no. If it wasn't for Stranger in a Strange Land and the impact it had, we wouldn't have got wide releases of, uh, well, the two big ones that came out on paperback around the same time were Isaac Asimov's Foundation and Stranger in a Strange Land. Right. And once the company seen that they could take serious intellectual sci-fi and it would sell, then you got the then you got Philip K. Dick widely distributed. 
and Rogers the Land and the rest of them. Well, all I can say about that is that um, that was a failing on the imagination of publishers. The audience was always out there waiting for those. And it was the publishers that were um, coward. They were coward for not recognizing yeah. earlier they won't what. They do nothing until they see that they're going to make money off of it. And that's right. where our part comes in. You like book A and book A style. Buy book A. Buy book A style. And maybe after a while they'll see that they can sell book A and it's going to make money. So you're going to get more like book A. Money talks. Right. That's, um, that goes right to uh, that new show. It's not so new anymore, but um, the science fiction show that Amazon picked up after Sci-Fi Channel dropped, The Expanse. The guys who created Expanse actually were trying to create a video game. And they had backing. They had um, foreign money, China and Japanese investors. But as they created their um, video game, I think it was two years into it, they lost their funding. But they had created this entire story with characters, this in this world, and so instead of just saying, "Okay, well, we'll I guess we'll just drop it," they thought for a while and they decided that they would write a novel that was essentially the video game, but there's never going to be a video game. And these novels, well, the first novel became a tremendous hit. They wrote the second novel. And then it got picked up for a TV series by Sci-Fi Channel. It's because of word of mouth. It's because people are craving this kind of thing. And it all started as a novel, as a broken video game. It wasn't really broken. They just threw their money somewhere else. Their, Their funding got taken away. And it went into a novel, a book, something to read. And people wanted it. So much that it became now this um, four seasons of uh, science fiction. Some of the best on TV. Reading. How about that? Kind of like a Twilight. It's kind of like a Twilight or a um, Hunger Games type situation where the books were so popular that they became films. But that's because people were reading them. And if you complain about someone for watching or reading a certain book, shut up. doesn't matter what they're watching. They're enjoying it. But And we come from the 50s and 60s. Well, we go back then where books would inspire whole generations. On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Hell, it inspired a whole generation to beat generation. Right. Right. 
You wouldn't find any of them without a copy of that, a ratty-eared copy paperback of that or with them. Exactly. And getting into the lurid stuff, Olympia Press made millions of dollars off of uh, Lolita, Lady Chatterley's Lover, the Henry Miller book. (laughs) You are so right. And you know what really was scandalous about Lady Chatterley's Lover? Um, No, tell me. A woman took control of her sex life and was living for her and not for her man. Oh, my God. That's perverted and scandalous. Oh, there are still people out there who believe like that. <laughs> yes, I remember when the the film came out. I remember the book and then the, the when the film came out. Oh my gosh, a lot of talk back then. Yeah, and uh, well, Lolita, of course. If you read Nabokov's oh, yeah. book, which really doesn't come across in any movie adaptions, Hubert Humbert is a psychotic pervert, and that was the whole point of the book. We are watching a not we're reading a novel, and this is what makes it good, from the point of view of a psychotic. Someone That's who's a narcissistic he, psychotic who believes that what he says from his soul is the truth. Right. 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 It's the same thing with American psycho. Oh yeah. man. When you read that book, it's coming straight from from your main character. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of the best produced to the '80s I've ever seen. Yeah, that whole corporate devouring culture. Oh yeah, it's so real today. It's it's unreal. But I mean, it's just like um, I guess we talked about Wall Street. Last time we were together on a show, and how yeah. Wall Street, uh, you know, effectively we're living, we are living everything that they warned us about in in entertainment, in books and films back in the eighties. We are living that right now. It's books, man. As Oliver Stone said, he wrote, he made Wall Street as a warning, but it turned <laughs> out to be a rallying cry for the Gordon Geckos of the world that this was their time. Yep. Thank you, Oliver Stone. Isn't I, you know, the back author's What? Go fault? ahead. Sorry. Isn't the author's fault when someone takes their idea? And warps it into a wrong way than the author intended to? No, it's not. But how many times has that happened? Even frickin' Hitler did it, you know? Um, He took Wagner's work and twisted it. I mean, he took all kinds of people's work and twisted it. Yeah. Well, look how the Bible's been twisted by people. They find something that fits their narrative. And then they use that as their weapon. Right. Right. 
Right, exactly. And if you find the exact counterpoint that's probably also in the Bible, oh, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, the Bible's um of all the books ever, it's probably the one that has caused the most misery. The Quran, too. <laughs> Any of those religious books. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and uh, well, in the 70s, we had some great ones like uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. That was a great freaking book. Yeah. Kind of scary, though, if you were a female. Well, the fact that it was a true crime story. Right. Makes it kind of scary if you're a female. <laughs> yeah. It was supposed to. True crime books right. are really supposed to be, you know. Are supposed to be, yeah, instead of a how-to, how-to book that they seem to be now, how do I commit this crime? Oh, yeah, you want that here, stuff on the ID channel stuff. They're like, this is how you get away with it. Right, right, exactly. And guys, if your wife watches a lot of this, look at her. <laughs> She's taking notes. You might want to start treating her better. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you don't want to hear this either. Ooh, that's a good idea. You know what a great book that you might want to read sometime I love and it was a it's uh called Paperbacks from Hell. Huh. No, I've never even heard of that. It's a book about the eighties paperback horror boom. Oh, Stephen King was part of that, right? Well, yeah. Well, it it, it doesn't even bother with Stephen King because there, you know, there was so much stuff coming out in the 70s and 80s. There was uh, Dune, the Conan reissues, uh, the Highland reissues, uh, the Richard Matheson reissues, uh, the Doc Savage and the other pulp novel reissues, uh, Clive Barker, Stephen King, Ted Klein, Dean R. Koontz. Oh, I love Koontz. I I devoured his work. His work was, I don't know, I just, it hit a chord in me. Yeah. I don't know how many books that man's written. I mean, all of the reissues of the of the science fiction and, well, what they call, uh, well, they don't call it non-literary. I forget what the term is for both of them, sci-fi, horror, together. But, yeah, that was the last really big boom. Right. Right. I think... They start, They reissued Philip K. Dick in the 90s, all his work. Yeah. But I really haven't, I really, I think about from 2005 or so, I haven't really seen any reissues of anything. No. Not even Lord of the Rings. 
And don't forget one of the glorious things ever for sci-fi fans, which was the Sci-Fi Book Club. Oh, my love. I was a member for 20 years. Yeah, when that first started, there's certain sci-fi books, that was the only way you're going to get them. Right, right. And you could get them. What I loved about sci-fi book clubs is that everything came in hardback. It wasn't the greatest hardback, and and the the pages were um, special low grade paper. But I love them. I love my books from Sci Fi Book Club. Yeah, that's the first time we got uh, Asimov in hardback. Uh, Philip K. Dick, a lot of them in Zelazny. hardback. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, that was like the greatest thing in my life because I could go through what I wanted on the, uh, and I could pick out and plan for and budget in what books I was going to read. Oh, I love that. And they weren't expensive, Not too. Even for hardbacks nope. back then, they weren't expensive. They were like 6 $7. Right, because they didn't use the expensive paper. They didn't use the expensive binding. I have some that are falling apart a little bit. My favorite ones, the ones I've read over and over again, they're falling apart because the binding wasn't, you know, top grade. But well, that was for me. That was a lot of top grade books in the '80s too. Whenever the company Penguin and Putnam were bad for this, they used the cheap glue that within ten to twenty years would turn to dust. Yes. And you would just look at the book, and the book would just boop, fall apart. <laughs> But yeah, that's how we treated us in high school when I was in there in the eighties. You were you hit high school, you got to read adult books. Yep. Yep. And I was one of the few that... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no no. Well, that's when I first saw um uh Heinlein and Stranger in the Strange Land. I yeah. mean that when when I went from, because I was a library person, I was in the library all the time. I just read series after series after series of first everything that interests me and then whatever secondary interests me because I already read all the other stuff. Yeah. And so I would just go through my uh, libraries when I was a kid. And so I was in the library and I'm like, what's this? Stranger in a Strange Land. Well, this is like that science fiction stuff. Cool. Yeah, I, that really popped my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, and that's a book that you that's still good today. You need to read that if you haven't. Right, right. If you haven't, they, that you can get that brand new. Um, it's they they don't remaster it or anything, but it's still in publication. 
so you can you can go to your favorite bookstore and get it, order it, whatever. Yeah. And I'm proud to say that our McKay's used books, CDs, blah blah blah. It's always packed whenever you go in. There's nothing like That's going good. into this giant building filled with books and just getting that old book smell in your nose. That's um, what I do not like about um, Barnes & Noble. It's The last time I was in there was probably two months ago. Mm-hmm. And it it's so, it's like clinical now. Not clinical. It's like, it's too clean. It's too, yeah. doesn't smell like books in there. It's too sanitized. That's the word I'm looking for. Barnes & Noble is just sanitized now for the new sanitized world. And I'm not talking about virus world. I'm talking about beforehand. I'm talking yeah. about everything from, like, 2012 to now, this new sanitized world we live in, this technology world. Yeah. yeah, and so you go in there and you look for books. I can't find anything that I'm interested in. Um, and then the cookbook area is just always torn apart. I, I don't know. Well, Stephen King said it the best. He said the worst thing about the the corporate bookstore is that it's too clean, too clinical, and you don't have that guy working the desk that knows what books are. Right. When I went in there to order books for my classroom last year, not not this not this COVID year, but the year before that, yeah. I had to have two people, two different people help me because one of them didn't even know what I was talking about. And it was a graphic novel. And so I, you know, it was a, a not a good experience. And finally I had to deal with the manager to get these books. And so, How hard would it be on you teachers if it wasn't for the mass market paperback? Literature um, teacher. Well, we're, it's a different era now. Before, when we used to read um, um, Steinbeck books, yeah, we needed that. But the way it is now, no, it's really hard because those those books that I ordered, they weren't cheap. They were they're nicely bound, beautiful paper and they didn't give I know, me even the much of it they're too damn expensive you know right because they don't they don't adhere to that that thing that we used to have where people with less money will buy paperbacks that are of less quality so they can read we don't have that anymore yeah so yeah schools used to rely on Teachers used to rely on paperbacks, but now we're told what we can teach, when we can teach it, what novel is right and which is wrong, and we can't deviate. And so it's a whole new game. Yeah. 
I had this literature teacher in high school. You know how she introduced it, and she even got the jocks into it? How? She brought up this football player, and she said, and he said, she said to him, do you know how to write a story? He's like, uh, no. He's like, okay, write a play on there. And he wrote a play, and he said, you just told a story. <laughs> And yeah, she expectations, like uh, the Iliad. Uh, yeah, we used and to read all of them. I have to bring Edgar Allan Poe. If I want to do Edgar Allan Poe, I bring it in once a year, like I said, on Halloween. Yeah. Well, good Lord, it's 857 already. And I felt like we just wow. even talked about it. <laughs> well, to close out, love books. Bring the love of books onto people that you love. Right. And if you have children, little children, Read Dr. Seuss to them. Read it to them. Let them get involved in the little characters. Read Hop on Pop. Read One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. Read these books to your kids, to your grandkids, so that they will fall in love with reading. I do it. My grandkids love to read books. You could do it, too. And it's a bonding thing. Definitely a bonding thing. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, I can remember my dad reading me Spider-Man comics as a kid. Taught me how to read at three years old. But then when I got to school, they told me, you learned to read the wrong way. Ooh, they did? Yeah, I was like, yeah. I was like, there's a wrong way to learn? <laughs> there isn't, well, but yeah. people got to make their money. <laughs> well, good night, everybody, and thank you for being on, Vicky. and here we go, out to the future. You're welcome. You're welcome, Stephen. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Magneto's right. There's a war coming. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. You sure you're on the right side?